The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Well, go ahead and open up your copy of Scripture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Turn on your copy of Scripture. Um, Know that what you have before you, whether it's an ink on paper laying on your lap or whether it's a digital copy that you have on your phone, what you have right now is uh, not a self-help manual. That's not what you have. Um, This isn't a manual for five steps to your best life now. What you have before you is the authoritative word of God. It's a double-edged sword that cuts and pierces and lays us open and shows us our need for a Savior. So if you would like to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to do that. This is verses 10 through 24. These are Paul's closing thoughts to the brothers and sisters in Christ that were in the city of Ephesus. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is what our brother in Christ wrote. Verse 10, finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Our sermon title this morning as we land the plane on our study through Paul's letter to the Ephesians is this. Life is a battle. 
Life is a battle. Life is a war. Life is marked by struggle, um, not only in the ways that we see it roll itself out in the physical world, but especially in the spiritual world. The main idea that Paul has for us this morning as we take all these verses and put them together is this, that the walk of grace and obedience is a spiritual battle that requires the Lord's strength. Our brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul, is going to say a couple of last words about this idea that we've been talking about for a while, the walk of grace and obedience. He's going to now begin to put this language into the language of warfare, reminding us that we will not be able to walk the walk of grace and obedience in our own strength. We must, must, must be strengthened in the Lord to be able to do so. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to ask God to empower the preaching of his word. Then we're going to dive into the text that we have in front of us. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do a great work through the preaching of your word, that you would expose our needs as I seek to expose the text, that you would expose our need for Jesus, expose our need for the strength of the Lord, expose our need because there are schemes of the enemy, expose our need for the equipment you have given to us expose our need for the friends that we must have in this battle god i cannot do this i don't have this kind of power i don't have the ability just to flip a switch and make us see our need for jesus to make us understand the scriptures we need you we need you and so holy spirit i ask that you would drench Drench this time, drench me with your spirit, that you would attune us in these days to who the true enemy is, so that we may walk as citizen soldiers in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, do these things for the fame and the name of our Savior. King Jesus. Amen. I want you to think about the citizens of Ephesus prior to the preaching of the gospel, right? So sort of import your mind back to the city of Ephesus and think about these men and women living in the city before the gospel came and before the gospel was preached. Here's how we could describe them. There were powers of darkness that stood opposed to God's kingdom there in that city. There was deep-seated alienation, Paul tells us, that existed between Jew and Gentile in that city. Spiritual death ruled the lives of the Ephesians outside of Christ because that's what they were. They weren't in Christ. They were outside of Christ. They were citizens in the domain of darkness. And what you could say is that all they knew was the bondage of Satan's dark kingdom. But then came the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. And through the preaching of the gospel, all of these obstacles were dealt death blows in Christ. Reconciled to God by the death of his son, these men, these women, these Ephesians in the city of Ephesus, they were now no longer enemies of God. 
in Christ, they were now citizens of his kingdom. Borrowing language from Paul's letter to the Colossians, what we could say about these Ephesians is that they were now citizens in the kingdom, having been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And for the Ephesian Christians then... And for all Christians today, this is the good news of God's kingdom. By God's grace, we are no longer followers of the prince of the power of the air. To the contrary, as recipients of grace, we are now seen as the opposition. We are seen as the adversaries of Satan's dark kingdom. So when we were outside of Christ, those Ephesians or any of us here, when we are outside of Christ, we are citizens of Satan's dark kingdom and he is happy for us to be citizens on the wide path that leads to destruction. But the moment that we heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the savior who saves sinners, who accomplished that through his death and resurrection from the grave, grabbed us, sovereignly saved us, transferred out of that dark domain and planted us firmly into Satan or into uh, Christ's good news kingdom, what happened was our allegiances changed and now Satan doesn't view us as happy followers in his kingdom. He views us unhappily as adversaries against whom he will rage. And this fact alone explains why so many marriages, so many families, so much turmoil in our places of work, so much of our lives in a broken world, so much of our spiritual lives can be described as life that is a battle. The moment God made you alive together with Christ, you were thrust to the front lines of a spiritual war. And now your day in, day out experience is a battle where the enemy of your souls is leveraging the forces of hell to undo you. Why? Because you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a good question that we can ask ourselves, a question that we can wrestle with is this. How should we march as citizen soldiers in this spiritual battle? Now, I'm taking that little phrase, citizen soldiers, and I'm using that very specifically because of all that I just said. You're no longer a citizen in Satan's dark kingdom if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're now a citizen in Christ's good news kingdom. But you're also now a soldier in that kingdom in that sense, waging a war, waging a battle. You're in the warfare. So the question is, how should we march as citizen soldiers in the spiritual battle? Well, to answer this question, all we have to do is look to the text in front of us. Because found in our text before us, Paul is going to describe the two step march of grace and obedience with the words of war so remember ever since we transitioned into ephesians chapter 4 what we've been saying is that paul has been calling us to understand that there is a manner 
in which we are to walk, a manner, he says, that is to be worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We've said Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a beautiful split. It splits right in half, where the first three chapters are all about that good news of God's grace, that sinners can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that's the forward step of grace. And then fueled by that grace... Because we have a right standing with God, because we now have a desire to obey our new king, our new commander-in-chief, if you want to put it in that language, grace compels us to say no to sin. Grace compels us to obey our king. And what we said was Paul helps us to know what that step of obedience looks like in the last half of his letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So because of grace, we obey. Grace, obedience, grace, obedience. That's how citizen soldiers march through this life. Grace and obedience is the two-step march. Paul is now going to help citizen soldiers understand that this two-step march of grace and obedience is a march that is leading us through a spiritual war. Listen, spirit-filled life is a spiritual battle. It just is. And what Paul knows is that we need strength for the battle. That's our first point this morning coming right out of verses 10 and 11. Paul knows that in this spirit-filled life, which is a spiritual battle, we need strength for the battle. Just look at the language that Paul adopts in verses 10 and 11. Finally, he says... So this isn't just a tacked on thought at the end, but this is the consummation of all that has come before. Hey, because I've given you everything that we've been talking about, finally, let me encapsulate this with a final thought. Be strong. That's the command. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Here's what you need to do. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Strength for the battle. So with these words, Paul issues the command for us to be strong. Notice that he qualifies this. He doesn't say be strong in your own strength. Be strong because there's something out there that can help you. There's something better than Jesus. He's saying, no, you need to be strong. And here's how you need to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. And he's saying this because Paul knows something that you and I often forget as we march through this spiritual battle. And it's this, that we cannot walk the two-step march of grace and obedience in our own strength. You and I are incredibly prone to forget this singular fact. We wake up in the morning, our heads lift off the pillow, and almost the immediate reaction thought of our hearts and our minds is what do I need to do so I can begin to work through my day today there's a lot of eyes and me's as we start laying out our list and start thinking through things we just sort of press the clutch of our lives and shifting the gears and hit gas and go shooting off into the day not recognizing we are walking right to the forefront of a spiritual battle and so many of us go in thinking that we can survive the battle for the day in our own strength. But Paul says, let me remind you, you can't. You can't do it. Jesus' people are a God-dependent people. We need his strength to fight the battle. The implied warning 
in these two verses is this. Do not look in the wrong place for strength. He qualifies his command to be strong because we are prone to be strong in everything but the Lord. So he says, don't look in the wrong place for strength. The only true and lasting source for strength in this spiritual battle is found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the strength of his might is the call to daily enter the fray, praying for, looking to, resting in Christ's divine power. Now, a great question to ask yourself is this. If I am to obey this command, because that language there, finally, be strong, he's not suggesting something to us. It's like he's looking right at Tom Miller and he's saying, listen, Brian, I'm telling you, you, sir, need to go be strong today. The question you should ask yourself is, strong in what? Strong in the Lord, strong in the strength of his might. So hopefully the next follow-up question you're asking yourself is this, has Paul shown us in this letter the kind of strength he is calling us to be strong in. Has he given us any illustrations of the kind of strength, the kind of divine power that is ours because we are in Christ? And if we were to ask Paul this question, guess what? He would come along and say, guys, I have already shown you. I have already given you two illustrations. And those two illustrations come from the two prayers that I prayed for you back in chapter one and back in chapter three. You see, Paul would say, guys, I've already shown you my two earlier prayers, and here is the first example of what that strength looks like. First, it's the divine power of God's resurrection strength. The divine power of God's resurrection strength that was put on display when he raised God, raised Christ from the dead. So go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Paul is in the midst of one of the most beautiful prayers for these brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus. He says, I'm praying for you to know these things. He prays for one thing. He prays for a second thing. But then he says, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know this. I want you to know, listen to the language he says, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. That's what I want you to know. There is not just power with God. There's just not great power with God. There is immeasurable great power with God. Question, how did God display the immeasurable greatness of his power? Paul says, he did so according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand and the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying now, as he's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, the spiritual battle that looms all around you, the strength that can be yours, the strength you can lean into, the strength you can rest upon to fight this battle, to stand firm in this battle is not your own strength, but it's the very strength of the living God who has the power to turn dead men back to life. The kind of power of a God who can speak and say, I want death to be now life. 
He's saying this is the kind of power that God has. And if he has that kind of power to turn death into life, he has the power necessary to equip you to be able to walk through the spiritual battle. So one power we can draw on for strength is the, in the battle is resurrection strength, that kind of strength God displays. The second one is this. It's the divine power of the spirit strength. So if you scroll forward up into Ephesians chapter 3, you find the second great prayer in this letter where Paul is praying for these brothers and sisters and listen to the language he adopts. He prays that we might, listen, be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, he says. So here is not only resurrection strength that we can lean into that will empower us for the spiritual battle, but here is what Paul, if you remember in Ephesians 1, said, the sign and the seal that a man or a woman is in Christ is the Holy Spirit. The guarantee of our inheritance is that the Spirit of the living God indwells us. And as He indwells us in our inner being, Paul says, I am praying that you would recognize that you can be empowered by this Spirit and be strengthened for all areas of life, this areas of life just known as the spiritual battle. So this should hopefully bring us incredible hope for the battle. Because when he says, guys, be strong, go stand firm, don't get sniped from the corners, he's not saying, now fold in on yourselves and hopefully you'll figure out how to, not, how to not go down in this battle. He says, no, you can fully rest on the resurrection strength and the power of the spirit strength. Resurrection might and spirit-empowered strength is ours for the battle. So, strength for the battle, it comes by God's enabling. But notice in verse 11 that it doesn't negate our responsibility. While it's true that we must stand firm in the strength of the Lord's might, we must also put on God's armor for the fight. That's what you see there in verse 11. And the reason we need strength for the battle is because there are enemies in the battle. Look at verse 12. That's what verse 12 is about. Strength through the battle, now we have enemies in the battle. See, what Paul is saying is that resurrection might, spirit-empowered strength, the whole armor of God are needed because the schemes of the devil are real. Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What you need to know is that behind every temptation to sin, behind every evil act, behind every wicked deed, there are unseen spiritual forces at play waging war against Christ and against his people. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 2 that the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. Why? 
because there is an ultimate spiritual enemy that rages against God, rages against his gospel, rages against his people. You right now here in Christ have an enemy that has his scope and crosshairs set on you because for no other reason you are in Christ. He hates God with a hatred you have never experienced before in your life. And he hates God's people with equal animosity. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul has already referred to our enemy as the prince of the power of the air. Our brother, the apostle Peter, describes our enemy as an adversary, the devil. The apostle John says our enemy is a slanderous, murderous, lying thief. He is the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the evil one known as what the Apostle John calls in Revelation 9. He's known as Apollyon, a word that describes the destructive nature of this enemy. He is the destroyer. That's what Apollyon means. He's a destroyer who loves to destroy. And since he hates God, he hates those who love God and he hates the fact that you enjoy God. And so with craftiness, he orchestrates deception to deceive you away from finding supreme joy in our Lord. His schemes are cunning and wicked. And if he can deceive Christians into believing that fellow Christians are the enemy and he is not the enemy, then he is happy to do so. Ever caught a glimpse of Christians sniping other Christians in any manner whatsoever? Christians in marriage, Christians in families, Christians in the workplace. Christians on Twitter, Christians on Facebook, Christians in the news. I'm telling you right now, Satan is laughing all the way to the bank because he has somehow convinced many he is not real, not at work. His schemes are not deceptive, crafty, or cunning. And Christians, knowing that there's something not quite right, begin to believe somebody's got to be the enemy and far too many Christians think fellow Christians are their enemies. Therefore, like a good captain on the field of the battle, what does the apostle do? The apostle Paul, he's like our, our, our battle captain, man. He's leading us out into the fray. We're there on the front lines, man. Enemy mortars coming in, shots are being fired, Fiery darts is the language he uses a little bit later. These things are raining down upon the Christian. And what he's saying is, guys, stop the fratricide. Stop sniping and shooting one another. They aren't the enemy. The real enemy is the enemy of your souls. 
So he says to them in verse 12, guys, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are not the enemy. Those gifted differently than you are not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your parents are not the enemy. Your children are not the enemy. Your coworkers are not the enemy. Your boss, they are not the enemy. Rather, the real enemy is Satan and his hellish hierarchy of rulers and authorities, those cosmic powers and those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, they don't care how they destroy your marriage. They don't care how they destroy your family. They don't care how they destroy your witness in work, witness on Twitter, witness on Facebook, only so long as they do destroy it. If God's plan, just think about all that Paul has said in Ephesians so far. Like, Go back to as early as Ephesians 2 and start rolling out all the gospel implications that Paul has been laying out for us. And whatever the gospel implications are, what you need to know is that the scheme of the enemy is to do the exact opposite and to do whatever he can to make sure that whatever should be happening won't happen. So... Think of Ephesians 2 and begin to roll forward. If God's plan is to create one new humanity in Christ, then the enemy of our soul will do his utmost to destroy that one new humanity. If the dividing wall of hostility between ethnicities has been broken down in Christ, then you have to know that the devil and his emissaries will strive to rebuild those walls. So much of what we're seeing going on in our culture at large right now is not what media says it is. The media would have you believe that it's skin color that's a problem. And if you can stop being persuaded by one person's skin color against another's skin color, then we'll fix this whole racist problem. But the Bible would say that there is sin lurking in our hearts and it's the sin of partiality that leads us to believe and think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And the schemes of the enemy are this. If he can lead you to believe that it is good to somehow resurrect a wall that has been destroyed by the redeeming, reconciling work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is happy to let you believe whatever kind of worldview is being pushed by your favorite news feed. He's laughing all the way to the bank because he's deceived you into believing that is the problem, not something that is being orchestrated in the heavenly places, an orchestration of evil. You see, if God intends for his redeemed and reconciled people to live together in unity, Ephesians 4, purity, Ephesians 5, then you need to know that the powers of hell are going to scatter the seeds of discord so that they can destroy unity and scatter the seeds of sin so that they will lead us to believe that purity isn't that big of a deal. If our marriage relationships, if our family relationships, if our work relationships can and do preach the gospel, then you have to know that Satan and his minions will do whatever it takes to take you out. Now, here's the good news for the battle, my friends. Because some of us are like, man, alive. Is that really what's going on? That's what Paul is telling you in his word, in the word right now, in his letter to the Ephesians. 
You see, some of us think that our spouses are the enemy whenever we have conversations. Surely we're not the only one around here. We're like, have you just ever like that conversation just sprung up out of nowhere? And you're like, we're we're not hearing each other. There's just mass miscommunication. And then you're like, ah, you're getting all wrapped around the axle, your spouse, and then you can feel tempers rising and stuff. And in that moment, you sort of maybe get that breath of clarity. You step back, you're like, where on earth did that just come from? You see, in that moment, the immediate implication is to look at your spouse and go, this is enemy number one. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to override and beat and defeat enemy number one. And what we fail to recognize in those moments is that your spouse is an enemy number one. There's a crafty, scheming, deceitful, cunning 